Broadcasting from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, it's time for Dental Law Radio. Dental Law Radio is brought to you by Oberman Law Firm, a leading dental-centric law firm serving dental clients on a local, regional, and national basis. Now, here's your host, Stuart Oberman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dental Law Radio. We're going to talk about something so near and dear to our hearts if you own a dental practice or if you are a general dentist working for a practice, dental associate contracts. I think what we're going to discuss today can really apply whether you are a student in dental school, uh, which I personally have the, the great honor of speaking at, and it's amazing um, what what the process is in, in dental school to get to that finish line. And whether you're a small practice, large practice, whether you're scaling, whether you have 10 practices, 20 practices, one practice, the, the conceptually it's, it's going to be all of, of the same. There's a couple points that really, we can spend a whole day on this, but we only have a little bit of time. So I'm going to touch on some highlights, especially when it's new regulatory matters um, regarding independent contractor status. So, you know, first thing I'm, we want to take a look at, you know, when you're coming into a practice, what is your status? You know, you're hiring or you're going into a practice as an employee or even independent contractor. Are you an associate dentist? One thing you got to consider is the internal revenue service. Are you an independent contractor or are you an employee? Now, I believe on some previous podcasts, we've talked about some regulatory matters regarding independent contractors and how everyone, uh, state and federal is cracking down on that. So again, it's a key because if you're coming in as an employee, your contract will be totally different than if you're an associate. I mean, excuse me, if you are an independent contractor. Uh, we're getting into tax issues. We're getting into 1099 issues. So I think we need to take a strong look at that as to what the relationship is. We see contracts that are actually geared towards an independent contractor, but yet the wording is all of the contracts as employee, which is a disaster if you are a practice owner. So now I think, you know, number two, we want to look at a couple of things. Again, I could talk probably an hour on each topic here, but we're, we want to drill this down to very specifics. So you got to look at your schedule locations. You know, what are the number of days are you going to work? What dental office are you going to work at? If you, if you work for a large group or if you own, or if you own some practices, where is your associate going to work at? And then, you know, what's the work schedule? Is it weekdays? Is it weekends? Emergency calls? Who's going to handle, you know, after hours? Who's going to work on Fridays? Where, where are those Saturday, Sunday appointments coming in? I think all those, these things are, are critical because if it's not explained fully what the expectation is as far as date, time, and locations, then you run into some issues regarding non-competes. Now we're going to get into a little the benefit issues a little bit as to malpractice insurance. Uh, one, are you covered under your employer's coverage? Two, if you are an independent contractor, do you have your own coverage? And then if you have your own coverage, is it going to cover the practice that you are working in? So I would never touch a patient with less than a million dollars in coverage. Never. Uh, you know, what are your deductibles? One thing that comes into play is that on the risk management side, we will have to put out patient fires. And first thing I'll ask our doctors is what is your deductible? So if you turn in a malpractice claim, which is a whole nother topic, 
and your deductible is five thousand, but you can resolve a case for three thousand. Get it resolved. Do not turn in a malpractice claim. And if you do get it resolved, for goodness sakes, sign a release. Get a release signed before you issue a check. So now we want to look at, you know, item number four, duties of an owner and associate. What are the responsibilities? It should be specifically lined out what your responsibility is, what the owner's responsibility is, staff, billing, collections. Let me say this as far as billing goes. I don't care whether you work for yourself, own a practice, or you work for a group, or you work for a doctor that owns one practice. You are responsible for your own billing. If billing is fraudulent, if billing is incorrect, if billing is grossly overstated, you have bought that problem. You cannot delegate that problem to a staff member that you work with. Next, number five, I would say would be compensation, which is all over the map. If you're going to work for a group, you're going to be around 30, 31%. If you're going to work for an owner, depending on what it is, relationship, you're going to be around 35 to 40% collections. Uh, there's a growing trend to do away with production. We haven't seen that number in a while. Are you working at a flat fee? Do you have a basis? Do you have an upside? Are you looking at 35% or the greater of that base pay? So on a reconciliation, we run into a lot of problems on the associate side where the doctors who own the practice or group are not reconciling on a monthly basis. If, if, you, if your last day is the end of the month, that should be reconciled probably within five days, I would say. Sometimes it's going 30, 60 days on a reconciliation, and that is never good because you don't know where your numbers are at. So, again, compensation is, is a huge issue. That's a whole other day topic. But going on to number six, uh, these are ex- items that I, we see a lot that are excluded. And these are essentially what are the business related expenses. Who's paying for your license fees? Who's paying for your associate memberships? Automobile expenses. Are you a 1099? Are you an employee? What's the entertainment? You're going to be expected to bring in business. Even on the dental side, marketing never stops. I would say that entertainment, it could be, you know, events. It could be fundraisers, promotional expenses, continuing education. I will tell you that a simple seminar for a general practitioner is a lot different than it is for an oral surgeon who's doing implants. I think you need to have a defined number as to who is going to pay for the expenses and for how much. Now, practice insurance, are you going to pay that? Health insurance, who is going to be responsible for that? Disability and life insurance. These are all basic things that should be absolutely listed in your expense portion of your contract. Again, the more you put in your contract, the less speculation and the less you will have to call me down the road. Charts. Question we get was, well, you know, I was with, uh, you know, Dr. Smith for 10 years and, you know, I have an established patient base. I look forward to taking those with me when I leave. 
you're absolutely wrong. Your patients do not go with you when you leave. Your patients will stay with the practice. That is a practice ownership. Now, the question is, what do you advertise when you leave? How much do you advertise when you leave? Are you able to advertise when you leave? And if so, does that affect your non-compete? Those are all valid questions. It depends on your agreement. Your agreement will have, we're going to jump into another section, but uh, one area you want to make sure you have access to is if a malpractice claim is filed or a board complaint is filed when you leave that practice, you must have stipulated in your contract that you have access to those records to defend the lawsuit and to defend the board complaint. Rule of thumb is you take no charts with you, you take no information with you, you take nothing with you except your instruments. Number eight, non-compete. I get this question all the time. Is my non-compete enforceable? As a gentle rule, yes. General rule, yes. Now, there are some states where that is not true. You've got to look at your specifics on each state. So the question is, well, what's fair and reasonable? You've got to be, it's got to be geographically non-restrictive. It's got to be fair, reasonable. I will tell you, there's some locations where a 60-mile non-compete is extremely reasonable, where a 5-mile non-compete is not. I know on our contracts that we draft as a firm, we try to push the limit, honestly. I want to not compete this 10 or 15 miles from my doctor, my owners. Now, when I'm on the other side of the fence and I get an associate, I want a three to five mile radius. So then you get a question of is it air miles or is it as the crow flies, as we say, or is it by Google Maps? That is a huge difference because sometimes a practice that you're looking to buy or you're looking to move to is within two blocks of your restriction. So you've got to specify, is it air miles as the crow flies, or is it a Google Drive maps? Critical. So again, you want to look at the specific time period. What is your, what's your time period on the non-compete? What's your geographic area? Is it fair and reasonable? Again, depending on your location, two years, 10 miles may be unreasonable. Depending on the, the practice that you're at, three years, 30 miles, 50 miles, 60 miles may very well be reasonable. We have some clients that for a variety of reasons, their patient base is 60 miles. So if they have an associate come in, we're going to draft a 60-mile non-compete radius. Critical, critical, critical. Again, going forward, number nine, confidentiality and trade secrets. All information in a practice is deemed confidential. For those practice owners, I would urge you to have every employee that you employee, including all independent contractors, including staff members, including associates, including hygienists, everyone signs a non-disclosure agreement. Everyone signs a non-disclosure agreement. Trade secrets. I will tell you the first thing that will leave will be your patient base data. That is all owner ownership interest in the practice belongs, that information belongs to the practice owner. Work for hire. That's a whole different world as far as trade secrets go. So let's take a look at retreatment. Number 10. There are some dentists that are 
better than others. There are some that are a disaster. If you hire a disaster, what are you going to do when that doctor leaves and you have retreatment, redo after retreatment after redo for years to follow? Who is responsible for that? For the most part, you're going to take care of that patient and you're going to absorb that cost but that could be thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars later. This is one of the reasons in our asset purchase agreements, on the buyer side, we put down the owners responsible for what they do prior to the sale. So let's take a look at number 11. And we get this question a lot. Associates' right to buy in. It's amazing to me that when we talk to our dental students that are getting their first job, They have not even discussed this matter with the owner. They've not even met the team members, the staff members. They have absolutely no idea what the culture is in that practice, and they already want to be an owner. They already want to be a buy-in partner within a year. My strong recommendation is that there is absolutely no discussion whatsoever up front regarding a buy-in. Unless that is a relationship that you've known that doctor for years, you have filled in every now and then, but there is nothing worse that will kill a good goodwill of a relationship before you even step one foot into the practice or before you have one hand in someone's mouth is ownership. If it is a good fit, it will take its course naturally. A lot of our associates are misled. Well, you know, we'll have you buy in for, you know, in a couple of years. That never happens, unfortunately. So I think you've got to gauge the relationship. I think you've got to gauge. Now, there's nothing wrong in there with putting in a contract that you have the first right of refusal should the doctor sell the practice. But I think is it a gross mistake to get in there and say, I want in my contract valuations, buy-in options. I want to know what your EBITDA is, I want to know what your numbers are, and I want to buy in within a year, and here's the price. I would throw that out the window and not worry about that. So, you know, again, this is a very, very short segment on associate contracts. There are times, you know, we could speak on this for for hours at at a time, but I think if you look at what we've discussed in, in, you know, these 11 topics, I feel certain that you will take a look at your contract. And let, let me say this about a contract. So do not get contracts off the internet. Do not use what your what your buddy did. Do not use what your brother-in-law did, you know, with his associates. It is ever evolving. Employment laws change, circumstances change. An interesting part on our side, as a firm, we had dental clients probably in about 30 states or so. And we happen to see different trends, different things coming east, coming west, going north, going south. So Things change, wording changes, relationships change, laws change. So we see contracts that are used over and over and over for five to 10 years. And those are absolutely a recipe for a disaster, as I often say. So do not go on the internet. Do not download one. Do not cut and paste one because it is so different for each practice. That is going to conclude our segment on dental associate contracts. 
And if you have any questions, any concerns, please feel free to give us a call, 770-886-2400, Oberman Law Firm. And if you want to email me, please feel free to email me, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, at ObermanLaw.com. Thank you for joining our segment, and we'll have much more to follow in future podcasts. Have a great day.